0: Hi, I'm Michelle, and I'm, wait, am I the straight-laced psychotherapist? I thought I was going to be the unconventional hypnotherapist, and you were going to be
1: the super-serious trauma specialist.
0: No, you were going to be the relationship expert. Like, love expert. And you're going to be the specialist who guides people with
1: down-to-earth techniques for transmuting trauma? Yeah, yeah, that's me. Okay, good. I'll be the love expert. I mean, I am the love expert. I think we have this all sorted out. I'm Laura Richer, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective.
0: And I'm Michelle Mooney, a therapist at Anchor Light, and this is Holding Ground. Today and every Monday, we've got a little bit of everything for you. Shall we? Yeah, let's do this.
1: Good morning and welcome to Holding Ground. We are here every Monday morning to bring you a little bit of everything in the world of therapy and positive mental health. My name is Laura Richer and I am the owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. And we're live today on 1150 AM KKNW. And you can also find us anytime where anywhere where your favorite podcast is streamed. So Today, we have a really interesting show for you. I am joined by Anchor Light's newest therapist, Mara Harrington. Mara is a licensed psychotherapist that works with children, teens, and adults. Welcome, Mara. Thanks, Laura. I'm so happy to be back again. Good morning, listeners. Well, we are so happy to have you back. So, I'm super excited because Anchor Light Therapy Collective has been growing and expanding its scope of practice. and. We are now working with couples and individuals as well as children, teens, and families, and Mira is one of our newest therapists who are, who is working with children, teens, and families, so she's bringing something new and exciting to Anchor Light. Um, we have a, an integrative approach at Anchor Light Therapy, and we employ all sorts of modalities to work with our clients, and we use things like Hypnotherapy, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy. When we're working with our couples, we use the Gottman method, um, as well as emotionally focused therapy, CBT therapy, DBT therapy, you name it. We've got all kinds of different interventions that we use. And we have recently added two more therapists to our practice. Mara is one of them, as well as Kat, who you will. Uh, meet in upcoming months, Um, and they both offer, as I said before, services to families and children. So today we are going to be talking about autism or autism spectrum disorders on the show, which affect one in 54 children in the United States, which means a lot of people are affected by this disorder. And this is often a really challenging diagnosis for parents to receive for their children, in part because there's a lot of fear and misinformation associated with the diagnosis of autism. And that is why we thought it was such an important diagnosis to address on the show today. And so Mara, I'm so excited to have you with me to talk about this because you have both personal and professional experience with autism. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about that.
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, I am a mother of a wonderful daughter on the autism spectrum. Um, My daughter is 25 and she is killing it. Um, She's doing so great right now, much better than anyone could have ever imagined um, she would be doing. And that's been so inspiring to me. Um, I also have experience as a teacher working with students on the spectrum. And when I was an AmeriCorps volunteer, actually, aside from when my daughter was initially diagnosed, I worked a lot with um, developmentally disabled and emotionally disabled students. And some some of them, I do believe now, at this point looking back, were on the spectrum. But it didn't seem to be as common a diagnosis then.
1: Well, you come with to us with a lot of experience. And I know in the past, I have worked with parents who have received a diagnosis of autism for their child, and that can be very challenging and even scary for them. What was that like for you to receive that diagnosis for your own child?
2: Well, it, it was a lot of uncertainty, first of all, just not knowing what it meant for her just like you know some parents will hear that their child has a diagnosis of add or adhd and think well that's it you know (laughs) there's there's nothing that i can do and you sort of give up hope because that's the the hand that you've been dealt more or less but i really feel that psychoeducation can go a long way and just really understanding that it is a spectrum. So there are a lot of differences. No two people with autism are exactly alike. And I think that's really important to remember.
1: So let's back up a little bit and maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about what autism or autism spectrum disorder actually is.
2: Absolutely, so autism or, you know, we'll we'll just call it ASD or autism spectrum disorder. It's a broad range of conditions and, Usually it's characterized by challenges with social skills, things like repetitive behaviors, um, speech, nonverbal communication. um, And like you mentioned before, autism affects one in 54 children in the United States today that we know of. It's complex. It's a lifelong developmental disability. It usually appears when someone is very young, like from infancy on. it impacts social skills, communication, relationships, self-regulation. Um, it's defined by these behaviors, but it is on a spectrum. So it affects people to varying degrees of severity.
1: So as we mentioned, that's a significant uh, amount of the population who is not only diagnosed, but they need to also take into account all of the the people that they interact with. So parents and, and family members and loved ones who are also working with the diagnosis as they work with their loved one who has autism or ASD, autism spectrum right. disorder. Um, so what does that process look like when somebody is diagnosed? How When are they usually diagnosed and and what might bring a parent to think that they would want to have their child assessed?
2: Well, and actually that's one of the first signals to medical professionals that there might be something is if the parent notices because the parent sees the child every day. Mm -hmm. So they have, they have the most perspective on what's going on. Mm -hmm. And this, this is their baseline. So like, usually it shows up before three. And a lot of times it's more likely that boys are going to be diagnosed than girls. And it it does tend much like ADD and ADHD to go undiagnosed in girls. Why is that?
1: Why are boys noticed more than uh, girls?
2: Well, they demand to be noticed more. (laughs) No. Um, (laughs) So looking at it, there are a lot of different behavioral things, you know? Um, so women and girls, they present with autism to different degrees and, at first, it's thought like when girls are more able to camouflage their autism spectrum than boys are like they force themselves to make eye contact. They will often prepare jokes and phrases before a conversation. So they're ready to go. They'll find it easier to mimic the behavior of others. You know, maybe they've determined them to be socially appropriate, or they'll imitate facial expressions and gestures. And there haven't been a lot of studies, but. Some of the larger studies have shown that girls with autism actually have more difficulty with social interaction. They have less ability to, to adapt. They have less of a tendency to hyper Oftentimes they have more emotional disturbances and increases in cognitive and language issues, which can result in them acting out and having increased aggression. Now, if you wanted to know what causes autism, there are a lot of different theories, but we don't really know for sure yet. So interesting. What do you and what are some of those
1: theories? Is there any information that that is concrete that they know leads to autism or is it all just theories and we don't really know yet?
2: A lot of it is theory, like there's the hyper hyper male brain that says that, you know, the fetus was exposed to higher levels of testosterone, but that's not super well established right now. Uh, There are genetic anomalies that result in autism, and they say that girls may have protective factors that can protect them from developing autism to the same degree as boys, and then there's the nature versus nurture. You know, is it genetic? Is it both? I know we talked about that last week in our episode on addiction, but a lot of it can have to do, have something to do with this. Um, and it's really likely that there are just a lot of different factors in play when a child presents with autism. That's how complex it is.
1: So it sounds like boys are diagnosed sooner because they may display some of the the classic symptoms of autism that that maybe people are familiar with, like the hyper focus on one topic or or maybe the different routines that can't be interrupted. But girls, since it per, presents as maybe emotional disturbance or acting out, or maybe even like learning disabilities, that maybe that's it gets misdiagnosed. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay, gotcha
2: or they're able to fly under the radar. Whereas like with boys, you, you know, a lot of autism symptoms, they're divided between social and behavioral. So the social skills cues, the, the signs would be extreme shyness or reluctance to socialize and maybe using like inappropriate laughter, say no one else is laughing at something and they just burst out with laughter that's that's you know not what we would consider to be normal. Um, a lot of autism clients would have inability to maintain eye contact or listen to people they may be resistant to touching or being touched I know like sometimes I've had to remind myself of this fact like when my daughter comes home and she's had a rough day at work I my mother instinct is immediately to hug. And that is, that is not necessarily the way to go all the time. Mm. So I've had to kind of control myself in that aspect. Cause that and isn't always soothing
1: to her if she's upset. It's,
2: right. It's more distressing and it will mm. just make things worse. Um, another thing is the inappropriate or flat affect. They might not really show their moods or be able to understand how someone else what what someone else is projecting with their facial expression body language and so on um they might not be able to carry on a conversation if it doesn't interest them or you know they'll be like we said hyper focused on talking about one particular topic that interests them sorry academics but you know it's not a niche market for you yeah (laughs) (laughs) they may also have an inability to express their emotions effectively okay
1: and you mentioned the nurture part of it and i always hear with autism that early intervention is so important is that part of the nurture piece is is once it is identified what kind of treatment they receive may determine the outcome of how severe the symptoms could
2: be absolutely and how early treatment begins because in cases of autism you know there are so many it's it's about repetitive behavior patterns which hello is our big therapeutic job right now it's and there are repetitive behavior patterns um, repetitive movements routines rituals self-harm um sensitivity or dulled response to like light and sound, um, fixations on objects, activities, like food aversions and preferences. All of these things can be addressed if we have an opportunity to start working on them with a child at an earlier age. In these cases, truly the earlier, the better.
1: Well, that is so good to know and a lot of good information to help our listeners recognize the signs and symptoms of autism. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's time for us to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about this topic, but don't forget that you can find us, especially Mara, if you are a parent who has a child with autism or you maybe even you want to do your own therapy as a parent, you can schedule a complimentary consultation with Mara at anchorlighttherapy.com. So this is holding ground and we will be right back.
4: I'm Dr. Anthony Leiserwitz, and this is Climate Connections. If you open a bottle of champagne or wine this New Year's Eve, take a look at the stopper. In recent years, plastic stoppers and screw tops have come on the market as alternatives to natural cork. But cork can be better for the climate. Cork is harvested in the Mediterranean from the bark of cork oak trees. The process does not harm the tree, and the bark regrows. But the first harvest cannot begin until the tree is about 25 years old. You can only harvest that oak every nine years. But because they live for hundreds of years, you actually get to harvest them 18, 19, 20, 22 times. Carlos De Dejus of Amarim Cork says cork forests store a great deal of carbon. And manufacturing cork stoppers creates little carbon pollution. To minimize waste and help power manufacturing, production plants often burn cork dust. And in the case of Amarin, 65% of our energy needs comes from the dust generated by the production of cork stoppers. Independent studies have found that there is far more carbon stored in a single natural cork than is emitted to the atmosphere by producing it. So using cork instead of plastic or aluminum stoppers is not only traditional, it's more sustainable. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org.
1: Thanks for tuning in to our brand new show, Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective.
0: And I'm Michelle Mooney, the co-host of Holding Ground, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Our passion, our one big thing in life, above and beyond love, relationships, trauma, addiction, and healing. Our specialty is helping others. Every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com.
4: Hi. I'm Dr. Michael Norman, your health tip of the day from the African American Wellness Project. Infections like polio, smallpox, and measles used to be as common as coronaviruses today, but now we have life-saving vaccines for those and other diseases. Sadly, too many children still go unvaccinated. Choosing to delay or refuse vaccine puts your child and other children at serious risk. So talk to your child's doctor today about vaccines. And for more information, visit aawellnessproject.org.
3: Alternative Talk 1150. It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA.
1: Welcome back to Holding Ground. I'm your host, Laura Richer, owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle. And today I am joined by one of our newest therapists, Mara Harrington. Mm -hmm. And Mara is very familiar with autism spectrum disorders on both a personal and professional level. And so I'm so excited that you can join me today to talk about this
2: important topic. Thank you so much for having me back. So
1: just to recap a little bit um, for our listeners who are just joining us, we've been talking about autism and how it presents differently in children, especially the difference between how it presents with boys and girls. So, Mara, can you just tell us a little bit about how autism presents differently in girls than it does in boys?
2: Absolutely. Um, I mean, like I said, you know, women are a lot better at masking what's going on. So they're going to have more social difficulties, more trouble interacting because of autism. Um, They're not going to be as adaptable, which can be really challenging. And emotional problems on top of these, I mean, can add to comorbidities with feelings of frustration, anxiety, depression, all of all of these and acting out and becoming aggressive in ways that, you know, our society doesn't typically assign to women.
1: And so when, and as a parent of a child with autism, what, what did you maybe start to notice? And at what age did were there some? Because I know you, as you said, you have a daughter, and and so she maybe didn't. Did she have the classic presentation, or were there some things that you noticed that were different?
2: Well, we were also working with an ADHD diagnosis. So when, if for those of you who are unfamiliar with comorbidities and things like that, there can be some masking of different symptoms because they do tend to overlap to a degree like hyperfocus and things like that um, over overlap with ADHD and autism spectrum. So if there are both and maybe one presents more severely, more strongly, that would be challenging to diagnose. So it really is a process sometimes for parents to
1: come to a working diagnosis that can really help them address the specific needs of their child cuz like you said this is a this is a disorder that presents in different ways for everybody. There's no two people that have the same presentation of this diagnosis.
2: Right. And right now as far as I have researched there isn't you you can't go in and have a blood test or a scan or something like that for autism.
1: You know, and that is, it would be so helpful if we could Mm -hmm. just have these concrete diagnoses, but that's true in all mental health disorders um, for children and adults, that there is no one like okay you have this now take this medication and you'll be better so that can present its own challenges because i know parents are so concerned about you know what does this mean for my child and what is this going to look like as when they're adults and and how can i prepare myself for the the challenges that they will have in the future and the truth is you don't really get that information right
2: right and it's on honestly parents listening it is the same for anyone raising a child we don't know and that is scary that's always scary when they hand you that little little larval human being in the hospital and it's yours and you're responsible for it for for the rest of your life because really you can say until 18 but you never stop parenting sure so there's always there's always that worry of what's what's going to happen yeah and we can't predict outcomes, we can't control how other people react. As much as we wanna be that buffer always, we can't, but we can start early with um, collaborative therapies that include family, loved ones, guardians, um, siblings that can help everyone learn how to provide better supports for children with autism. And that can make a huge difference.
1: You know, and you bring up such an important point. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to focus on this topic on holding ground is that you can't control how other people react when when children or even adults are displaying some of the symptoms of autism. But education is so important. And I know when we were preparing this show, we had a great conversation about this. But what are some of the things that you would want to tell people who maybe aren't don't have family members or or any relationships with people with this diagnosis? What are some things you might notice in people out in the world that 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 they're not trying to be uh disagreeable towards you? It's just that they may be working with, you know, having this diagnosis, and these are some of the presentations of it. What what are what would you <clears throat> want some people to know?
2: Um, well, I think it's really important to understand that the autistic brain is not the same as the neurotypical, as we might say, and there's nothing wrong with that. They process things differently. And like, like we talked when we were sitting in your office talking about autism, it's, it's outside of the box thinking in a way where they are not aware that the box exists. And I think it's really, it's really fantastic. And the more that neurotypical people can do to be um, more conducive, and kind, and understanding, and really mindful of the way that they're approaching people with autism because you know you can't change how another person thinks mm-hmm. or reacts you can change how you react and then that becomes the catalyst for hopefully more positive outcomes
1: Yes. And so I think just having information um, and, and talking about this can be really helpful. I was in Safeway one day and mm-hmm. there was an, a gentleman there who I don't know him, so I don't know what his exact history is. However, he was presenting as an individual that was on the autism spectrum and he was trying to ask the clerk for some information and she kept reaching out to touch him. And when she would touch him, he would react strongly to that. And I could tell that she was trying to soothe him when in fact she was aggravating him. And so So they worked it out. I didn't intervene in any sort of way, but I I was in my mind. I was stepping back going, okay, just don't touch him. He doesn't want you to do that.
2: (laughs) Right, right. And for a lot of us, we do have this experience and we might be more aware, but really what you're saying is that person was exhibiting all of the signs that he was kind of like cocooning and protecting himself from the stimulation and the people and the sounds and the lights and everything that a lot of times can be really distressing for someone on the spectrum.
1: And her intention, the clerk, you know, her intention was good. She was trying to help him get the information he wanted. She was trying to soothe him because she could see he was upset, but she didn't realize that touching him was actually, she was just trying to like pat
2: his arm, you know, in a soothing mm-hmm. kind of manner. but that was triggering him mm-hmm. even more. So And that happens so often. And I, I know we, we talked about this too, but if mm-hmm. you look on the news a lot in recent years, even, there have been a lot of instances of young adults and teens with autism who have been killed mm-hmm. or you know, severely damaged and traumatized by, by the police and by people who don't understand what they're going through, even though they're trying their best and using their skills to communicate that it's heartbreaking to see. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's why this is so important to continue this conversation, just so that you can recognize, you know, and even people who might seem unfriendly or, or non-responsive, and and you may think that they're trying to be rude or dismissive, that in fact may not be the case. So mm-hmm. just, I love to talk about this so that it's on people's radars. That if you if you want to react to someone, maybe take a step back and think, you know, what is that person working with right now? Because it might not just be that they're trying to be rude to you.
2: Right. Or think about you. Why, why is it? that this is even bothering me, that someone else is going about their life in a way that might seem slightly off kilter to me. Yes, I think that is a very good question to be asking. Mm -hmm.
0: So
1: we talked a little earlier in the show that we don't really know what causes autism. I know that there's a lot of uh, different theories around that, but we don't have a concrete answer to date. But a lot of people have a fear that it's related to vaccines and getting maybe too many vaccines too early. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I I want to, especially right now with everything that's going on, you know, there, there's absolutely 100% a valid concern about vaccination with the coronavirus vaccination being rushed out. I know everyone is, everyone with a child was already concerned about, you know, the big debate of whether or not vaccines are safe. So I do want to reassure that there there is no scientific research to show that vaccines cause autism. In fact, they've done a lot of research to show that autism is not caused by the vaccine. Like they've, they've done research on thimerosal, wrap your tongue around that one and try to say it early in the morning without caffeine. Um, (laughs) And that realistically is only found in the multi-dose vaccinations for the regular flu shot. So it isn't something that's regular. And the evidence does not support a link between vaccination and autism. They've done blood tests on autistic children and they see no difference in antibodies, no difference in really anything to suggest that there would be some kind of a catalyst in a vaccination come at me, anti-vaxxers. I'm I'm ready. (laughs) So, and that
1: is a big question right now with uh, people contemplating whether they want to get the the COVID vaccine. And so there's a lot more conversation around uh, vaccinations. I know people feel very strongly one way or the other, but it's interesting to note that there isn't really any evidence showing that a vaccine would impact a diagnosis of autism. What do you attribute, um, it appears to be, and I'm just kind of speaking off the top of my head without any evidence here in this statement that autism is more diagnosed than ever do you is there a higher rate of of people displaying symptoms of autism or do you think that it was a lack of of diagnosis in in previous years what are your thoughts about that
2: I feel like it was a lack of understanding of mental health in general, and the lack of diagnosis. Because if you look at it, there are a lot of people throughout modern history that, if you really take an honest look at it, oh, they were they were most likely autistic. Okay, and they just didn't have the language for it, or exactly the, the they didn't understand the mind as well as we do now. Okay, and I'm sure we're still going to be learning things in into the distant future about the brain. Oh, there's so much we
1: don't know. We're learning so much all the time. It really is fascinating. Absolutely. Well, so, so let's just talk a little bit more about that. Just what are some other statistics about what we do and don't know and, and how different places in the world <clears> are dealing with with autism spectrum disorder?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, when I was looking up statistics for the show, I discovered that the U.S. is not ranked the highest in number of child autism diagnoses per year. So we're third behind Hong Kong and South Korea globally with cases that they've they've looked at and the lowest numbers are in China, Taiwan, and Poland. They're the lowest rates of autism diagnoses in children examined for signs and of course not obviously not every child in the United States has been marched in and submitted to a battery of tests to determine whether or not they have it but There are also areas that are better, and I'm sure it doesn't surprise anyone, especially if you do have a loved one with autism or you're autistic yourself, that the Seattle area is one of the best places in the country to live for people who are on the autism spectrum.
0: So why
1: is that? Why would Seattle be better than other places?
2: well we have a lot of access to great medical care and providers that work with autism there's a there's an autism team at one of the universities it will it will come to me eventually at a time that i'm not currently talking about it <laughs> one of one of one of the universities is it the dog or the cougar or mm-hmm. the uh, uh, I'm not from here, so.
1: <laughs> as our as the Midwesterner, you're not familiar with it. So is it, it's at UW that they, I would imagine it's think I think, UW. I think yeah.
2: it's UW that has the autism team. And I did have a lot of clients when I was working in community mental health who as adults were receiving diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And we may have a whole show about adult autism further down the pipeline, but yeah, they were all trying to get into the autism project. Yeah, and that's a huge thing that I think,
1: because our generation like the gen xers and earlier i don't know that mm-hmm. we were working with this diagnosis as much or that people were not as aware of it the, the the people in our age range are actually getting diagnosed as adults that they were never diagnosed with children
2: but right they just thought we were a whole generation of people who didn't want to really have a lot of social contact with others and were just sort of minding our own business no yeah <laughs> we're gen autism yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, Um. and that is so important for adults because it gives them a framework to work in to actually seek treatment. So we definitely will be talking about that on future.
2: uh episodes. And there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of employers here who are more understanding. Um, Like Microsoft has a program that works specifically with employees who are on the spectrum. Like they look for them. Microsoft, if you're listening, call me. I'd (laughs) love to do a show with you and talk about that program. That would be amazing. Oh my gosh. That would be amazing. Right. So give me a call. Info, info at anchorlighttherapy.com. Amara <laughs> at anchorlighttherapy.com. Yep. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, there are other things too, like self-soothing is something that we don't necessarily think about. But if you look around here, like there are still times where I just look at the mountains and it instantly just calms me down. So there, that having access to recreation and those other kinds of opportunities that help to improve social skills. And, you know, we have that in spades here. We're just doing really well.
1: (laughs) Good. Well, I love to hear that. Seattle is, of course, my favorite city. So (laughs) that is also so much great information. We're going to continue to talk about this when we come back, different types of therapy that can be useful um, in treating autism, as well as some of the really cool things that people diagnosed with autism have accomplished in the world. And so we don't have to see this as a tragic diagnosis. There's a lot of hope. So we will be right back. You're listening to Holding Ground on KKNW.
3: You've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. You have to carefully monitor your health for the rest of your life. And you have an increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease. But Take two. Action. You've been diagnosed with a new purpose, to fight for the amazing life you've made for yourself. To look that risk of heart disease square in the face and say, no, not me. You've been given a new opportunity to live. Get started at nodiabetesbyheart.org. Thanks
1: for tuning in to our brand new show, Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective.
0: And I'm Michelle Mooney, the co-host of Holding Ground, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Our passion, our one big thing in life, above and beyond love, relationships, trauma, addiction, and healing. Our specialty is helping others. Every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com.
3: Have something important to say? Want to help improve our world? Need to promote your business uniquely and effectively? KKNW is the answer. Our staff helps broadcasters and podcasters create professional sounding audio. Bring your talent and let our experts help you craft a radio show or podcast that best delivers your message. Learn more at 1150kknw.com. That's 1150kknw.com. KKNW, talk variety that's live and local.
4: I'm Dr. Anthony Leiserwitz, and this is Climate Connections. Plants absorb carbon dioxide as they grow and store it in their roots, stems, and leaves. But when plants decompose, much of that carbon returns to the atmosphere. Joanne Corey is a plant biologist and geneticist at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. Her team is working to develop new plant varieties that can lock more carbon in the soil long term. She says these new plants need to have more and deeper roots in order to bury the carbon down deep, where there are fewer microorganisms that can decompose the plant
2: and make all the carbon dioxide go back up in the atmosphere.
4: Corey says the ideal plants will also have high concentrations of a molecule called subrin, which is found in cork. It holds a lot of carbon and breaks down very slowly. The project is in its early stages.
2: What we're doing right now is trying to understand what those traits really mean in terms of genes.
4: With that information, researchers can selectively breed for those traits or engineer them into widely grown plants such as corn and wheat.
2: We want to put these all into crop plants because you really need a lot of land if you're going to do this.
4: Corey hopes that in 10 years, these climate-friendly crops will be growing in farm fields around the globe. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Alternative Talk
3: 1150.
1: Welcome back to Holding Ground. I'm Laura Richer, and I am here with Mara Harrington. We are both licensed psychotherapists at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. And don't forget, if you would like to schedule your complimentary consultation with Mara, just go to our website, anchorlighttherapy.com, and hit the Get Started button, and you can set up a time to talk to her about your goals, especially if you are a parent or child that is working with autism spectrum disorder, which is what we were talking about today. So Mara, how do people, you know, we talked about how autism, we can't take a blood test. We, there isn't a magic pill. So how do people get diagnosed with autism? What does that look like?
2: Well, I mean, if there was, that would be fantastic, but we would be out of a job, right? We would be, (laughs) but we might be, we might be millionaires if we're
1: the ones who thought it, came up with it. Yeah. (laughs)
2: We'll, we'll take our Nobel prize in our trailer. Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Well, yeah, like we said, you know, there isn't a blood test or a scan generally that can test for any of the myriad of disorders that are on the autism spectrum or mental but, health in general right yeah. right You can't just look at someone and say, oh well I mean we can because we're such amazing therapists right sure. but sure. There's that yeah I, I can see right into your soul it's the years <laughs> of Catholic school coursing through me um, <laughs> Don't come for me sister Gabriel. okay. but yeah parents parents or their caregivers of those children can collaborate with medical providers to provide input on how the child has been acting. Like, you know, I've heard someone say, well, this baby in my life isn't making eye contact at all. Or why did my daughter anecdotally refused to go to a new restaurant because it was someplace that was unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. And she decided to throw herself on the ground and begin screaming, things like that. Um, but they look at you know behaviors and development, like motor skills, communication, um, because some children with autism can begin to speak and then lose that ability. And there are nonverbal people on the autism spectrum. Um, so some of the measures that they use in diagnosis are, everyone's familiar with screening instruments, systematic screening instruments. You go to the doctor and sometimes they'll give you the Beck depression inventory or something like that. Like how sad am I feeling? Do I not want to take a shower? Things like that. So it's kind of along the same lines, but there are a modified checklist for autism and toddlers That obviously would be more parents, teachers, babysitters, other caregivers that work with them. Um, The autism behavioral checklist would be used for older children on the spectrum. And then there's the childhood autism rating scale and also um, the autism diagnostic inventory revised that are used. And these measure the prevalence of symptoms. So how common, how frequent, how intense are these symptoms and how are, they, how are these children experiencing them as far as their parents can see? Because again, like babies, toddlers, they can't really verbalize to you. And even some children on the spectrum might not be able to, at an older age, fully communicate exactly what it is they're feeling or why they're feeling it. So we have to remember that too, because no two children present with the exact same symptoms. So it can take a lot of time. It can require a lot of patience, both of a parent and a medical practitioner who are working collaboratively to help these children. So once you do receive
1: a diagnosis, what does treatment look like?
2: Well, you know, Every, everyone is different. And it's just like when I have any client coming in for behavioral health services, they, they all look different and it all depends on the client. Obviously, like I mentioned in an earlier segment, um, the earlier the intervention, the better. It allows for the best outcomes usually when we treat someone with autism whether they're an adult or a child it focuses on cognitive and behavioral functioning so some of those things they might be using medication which obviously we don't provide I think there are some states where counselors can prescribe medication, but that is not here. So we we would leave that to a doctor and collaborate with them about, you know, what we're observing with how the client is responding maybe to interventions that we are providing them in collaboration with a practitioner who is prescribing them medications for challenging behaviors we would use behavioral therapies to work on certain issues Um, psychoeducation both if a child is able to understand that that they are different and why and also to help their parents and other caregivers family members to understand more about the autism spectrum Um, family support groups Um, Obviously, there are other things that we can suggest to parents as possible options for treatment like speech and language therapy, um, occupational therapy, there are even specialized trainings that can help these children to develop and improve their acquisition of necessary skills. Um, One of the really common ones that we're seeing being used with autism in children is applied behavioral analysis. And that can be really effective in reinforcing desirable behaviors and reducing the undesirable behaviors because it works not only with the child, but also with how the parent approaches the child and helps them to foster positive skills and reduce the negative behaviors. else. Um, So that's an
1: interesting point. So, and, and and this Mm -hmm. is true with any issue that a child may be having, whether they're on the spectrum or not, is the parents being included. And, and I would imagine even treatment for, or not treatment, but, but education for the parents plays a big role in how successful the child is.
2: Well, and I think it's fair also to look at it as treatment because you are helping them to, in a sense, come to terms mm-hmm. with the fact that their child has an autism diagnosis, that it is not everything that their child is. And that's one of the things that I focus on with any client that I have. You are not settled by your diagnosis. That is not all that you are. You are a person living with this. And In the case of a child on the autism spectrum, your child has autism that does make them unique in ways that, you know, they're already unique with other things, but this is an additional flavor, so to speak. And parents need to look at what their child can do and not Maybe focus so much on what they can't. Yes.
1: And there might be a grieving process that goes with that and understanding, you know, maybe these are some challenges that my child may face that are specific to this diagnosis. And the parent might need some help processing that grief, as well as Mm -hmm. developing the coping skills that they need to deal with, with, with some of the challenges. Cause sometimes children with this diagnosis can present with challenging behavior as do children Mm -hmm. without this diagnosis. Um, But but sometimes that, you know, there's some, some work that the parents can do just to develop their own coping skills and to really, like you said, and then I think this is the most important part to, to know that this is not all that their child is. And there are so many hopes and dreams and things that their child can accomplish they're just working maybe within a different framework
2: absolutely and they'll 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 get there they will i promise you um with a, a lot of things like i know we're all probably familiar with temple grandin yeah. she probably wouldn't have gotten where she was without that support and a lot and of tell our parents... listeners who just in case they aren't familiar who is uh, temple grandin She is an amazing PhD um, who had a very severe case of autism. And with treatment, she was able to get past it. And we're talking a lot of, you know, like speech therapy. She had support from her parents and it's, a lot of it is, tools that you can use, like parental involvement, predictable schedule, regular consistent behavior reinforcement, um, engagement of attention in structured activities, thinking school, thinking sports, thinking even like playing a board game, something like that. Um, They can all enhance a strength. They can enhance an ability um and they can all be really effective treatment modalities in their own
1: i think that's just so hopeful to just know that there's so many things that you can do that there's that there it's not a a uh not a death out-
2: sentence. It's
1: not a death sentence. There's no set outcome. they are mm-hmm. just like anything we can work on, things we can improve, we can change and and that you don't have to buy into a negative outcome cuz it doesn't have to be that way.
2: Absolutely. And we have, you know, behavior modeling. It's super simple. Uh, mm-hmm. Help your clients to identify their emotions. Um, Work with their parents, provide psychoeducation, give them a better understanding of what their child is going through. They might not know. I mean, there are autistic parents out there with autistic children, but they might present in a different way. You might not have autism and you may have an autistic child. And you're in the same boat as that autistic parent in that you don't understand the specific mechanics of your child's mind. You probably have the best idea of what is going on in their mind and you through psychoeducation can get a better understanding of what they need and what will help them to be successful. And, you know, I also like to remind parents that children on the autism spectrum, like we said before, they have outside of the box thinking to the point that there is no box. And There have been a lot of writings on how you know there are a lot of famous entertainers, inventors, artists like Dan Aykroyd, Hans Christian Andersen. We talked about Temple Grandin, Um, Tim Burton. Everyone knows who he is. Mm -hmm. Lewis Carroll and probably even Charles Darwin may have been on the spectrum. And you know, if we didn't have those people in this world, if we didn't have Einstein, if we didn't have Mm Yates how boring, Mm -hmm. how dull would it be if we didn't have their perspective through the looking glass to, you know, quote some Lewis Carroll. And I think that Dr. Grandin really said it best when she pointed out that there needs to be a lot more emphasis on what a child can do instead of what he cannot.
1: Absolutely. And think about, you know, that outside of the box thinking how much innovation comes through that, and it's obviously not a coincidence that Microsoft, the biggest mm-hmm. tech company in, in Seattle in the world, probably that they have a specific program for people with with autism because those are the innovators that are there developing technology.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're seeing that they're seeing that code, they're seeing um, game design, all sorts of things, and it's really amazing. I'm I've seen a few clients from tech backgrounds that are most definitely on the spectrum. And some of them are able to fly under the radar, again, because maybe they're on the shy side and they might have a hard time communicating with others to a degree, but they're brilliant. And they invent amazing things. And they're able to delight in these hyper activities and really excel but there are still areas where they can do some introspection and improve and be even better. And that's where we're here.
1: Well, that is a really positive take and a great way to end our episode today. So Mara, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge with our listeners and thanks to our listeners for joining us today to get to know you better. And if you would like to schedule a a complimentary consultation with psychotherapist Mariah Harrington at Acrelight Therapy. Just go to our website, hit the get started tab, and you can schedule a time to talk with her and see how she can help you. So that is it for today. Join us next Monday. We will be here again at 9am for another episode of Holding Ground. Stay safe, Seattle, and thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. And
0: I'm Michelle Mooney, a therapist at Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. We'll see you next week.